Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. What if the earth were your spiritual teacher? In Greening Spirituality, an online learning opportunity from the Graduate Theological Union's GTUX, Drs. Rita Sherma, and Devin Zuber examine the connections between spirituality and the natural world, including special consideration of Native American and Dharma traditions in the development of American environmentalism. Visit gtu.edu slash x to discover and sign up for learning opportunities on topics like justice, spiritual care, theology, ethics, and more. Podcast listeners can get free access to greening spirituality by using the code YOGAJOURNAL at checkout. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am so glad today to have on the program Dr. Rita Sherma. She is a founding director and associate professor of GTU Center for Dharma Studies and also the co-chair of the Sustainability 360 Initiative. Dr. Sherma is here to talk about the GTUX course, Greening Spirituality, in her forthcoming book coming in the fall of 2021, Religion and Sustainability, Interreligious Resources, Interdisciplinary Responses, a publication of Springer Publication, United Nations Environmental Program Sustainable Development Goal Series, which is based on a nearly 35-chapter volume based on a project of Sustainability 360 Project and Dharma and Sustainability Initiative of the Center that Dr. Sherma directs. Wow, Dr. Sherma, welcome to Talk Healthy Today. I'm so happy to have you. Delightful to be with you, Lisa. Thank you for doing the great work that you do. Well, thank you. And thank you for doing the work that you do. I learned so much from the parts of the book that I was able to read and also from the modules. I'd love to know, when did you first get interested in spirituality? And what does spirituality mean to you? Spirituality means different things to different people. For some people, it means um, a sense of something higher than or greater than just what's in front of our eyes, um, perhaps greater than even our embodiment. Uh, for other people, it just means a way of connecting to the world that is um, integral, that, that integrates your relationship to the world so that you're not see, that you don't see yourself as separate from everything else. And to still others, it means going deep into your own faith tradition and essentially eliciting from it um, what I call depth dimension practices. Uh, these are deep contemplative practices that every religious tradition um, has, including newer ones. Um, so so, so it's, it depends on where, from which angle you're coming into spirituality and from you asked where and when did I first get interested in spirituality? I would say my maternal grandmother and grandfather uh, were spiritual rather than piously religious. So there's my grandfather was a professional and a householder, but both of them were yogis and they were direct students of Mira Alfasa, better known as the mother of Pondicherry Ashram. Thorabindu Ashram, and she is the visionary who um, developed uh, the vision of Oroville, the award-winning UNESCO-supported international eco-town in southern India. My grandparents introduced me to the, uh, the major canonical texts of the tradition, not the usual narrative theology or mythology that people read, but to the Bhagavad Gita, to the Yoga Sutras, to the Upanishads, to deep meditation practice, and all before the age of 10, oh, wow. during summer holidays, while we lived oceans apart. And uh, so, you know, they also sent me the treasure, a, a huge treasure trove of writings of Sri Aurobindo, 
who's internationally viewed as one of the major philosophers of the 20th century. So that's where I start off. That's amazing. You had such a great introduction, it sounds like. Did they influence you to teach as well? Or did that come from within? Or was it a combination of factors? My grandfather, you know, who was one of my spiritual guides, along with my grandmother, he told me that, you know, you should go into teaching philosophy, you should go into academic study and teaching of philosophy. And I became an artist. So if you ask, when did I know I wanted to teach? I'd have to say I didn't. I just wanted to learn. And then I sought to learn even more deeply, which at our present time in history takes you into the depths of academic research. So when I received a Professor of the Year Award um, while I was teaching at USC in Los Angeles, and also when I received several nominations for the same at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where I am now, over the last five years, it felt so strange because I still experienced myself as a seeker and a student. What kind of art did you do? Oil portraits, uh, watercolor landscapes, and mixed-media large installations. Wow. Do you still do any of those? I have no time, but I would (laughs) love to. They must be beautiful. I would love to see some. You know, I was reading that your research and teaching interests are in Hindu theology and ethics, religion and ethics of sustainability, theory and method, feminine, divine, uh, and Hinduism, theory and method, and comparative interreligious studies. It sounds like, again, that this came from an early age from what you were taught. Was there anything that you learned about that you didn't learn from the things that you read when you were young? For example, was there things about the feminine divine and some of the other things that were maybe like, oh, this is new? Yes. In fact, uh, it's interesting, but um, I would say that my guide, this wonderful strawberry blonde woman from the Midwest, reintroduced me to the feminine divine in my tradition. Um, and, uh, when I was in graduate school and I, she also introduced me to eco-feminism, uh, eco-womanism, um, you know, these are the, and, and so you have tools to think with, you know, when graduate school is not just a matter of, you know, deep learning. It is of course, deep learning, but it also gives you tools to think with. In fact, in fact, um, higher education's purpose is not to, you know, dump a ton of information in your brain, um, but to change the way your brain looks and assesses, evaluates, and applies new knowledge. And so, you know, in a way, in a way, if you ask me, where do all of these teaching interests and research interests come from? I just say. They're all really related to yoga with a capital Y. So by capital Y, I mean that the broader meaning of yoga as coherent sets of philosophy, ethics, and practices that move you to greater self-understanding is the, you know, is the greater sense of what yoga is. And this is why we at the Graduate Theological Union here, we inaugurated the first PhD program at in yoga studies at the Center for Dharma oh, Studies. Wow. And uh, because people want to understand more deeply uh, who they are and what their right relationship should be to others on the path of life and to the world itself. And of course, to the supreme reality, you know, however uh, you construe it. You know, I love what you said about graduate school. I got my master's in public health, and it was just such an incredible experience and really being able to put what we learned into practice. And one of the things that was so important was to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. And I remember at the time I was dating a man who I went to his house and his cupboards were full of junk food. And I started, how do you have this in your house? I was like, wait a second. That's not meeting him where he is. How about, how about we go shopping? How about we try this instead? You know, like kind of putting those things into practice, which was so meaningful. I, I, I love public health. So that's beautiful. I mean, you, you don't want to drag people to where uh, they should be for their own well being. You want to lure them to it. 
Yes, exactly. I want to jump into the GTUX course, Greening Spirituality. And before we jump into that, tell us about uh, GTUX. Well, um, GTUX basically works at the intersection uh, of global culture and interreligious learning and leadership. And it extends the GTU's campus, furthers its mission by serving sort of as a digital learning resource uh, for individuals, but also communities internationally to engage deeply with the world's wisdom traditions and find the wellsprings of resources in them uh, to apply to the critical, you know, network of problems we face today. And so GTUX provides these unique learning opportunities online, virtual programs, events, extensive digital collections and resources for the study of religion and theology. And, you know, it, in, it, it, it encourages encounters with a spiritually rooted study and engagement of our time to inspire transformational change. I mean, that's GTU's entire history. And so some of the things that it's going to be, it has been doing is expanding academic resources learning resources for people who don't want to go to graduate school, but who are curious about these things. So there's digital learning modules like what you saw, the GT original. Um, and then there's virtual events, there's lectures, uh, public seminars, workshops, thematic series. And we're also digitizing. We have a vast library. Well, one of the, it's the, I think they say it's the largest west of the Mississippi in religious wow. studies and theology. And so we're digitizing that. And also we have a massive interreligious global art collection. And we want people to be able to be in the GTU museum while anywhere on the planet. So these are some of the things that GTU wants to, GTUX wants to foster. Um, and while doing that, to create a community uh, of people um, nationally and internationally who have these deep interests. Yeah, I found it so fascinating. How, how would you describe greening spirituality? And of course, they're going to learn by doing the modules, but just give us a little taste, and then I'm going to jump into each one. And just, I just want to tell a little bit about it. I don't want to give too much away. So greening spirituality, the way we conceived it, you know, um, I had, Lisa, you have a master's in public health, and so you'll, You'll know about this, that one of the things in contemporary mental health is this development of a subfield in psychology and clinical psychology and psychiatry that it's called um, climate-aware therapy. Um, and it deals with uh, climate trauma, um, I'll go into that in a minute, and eco-anxiety. So climate trauma can be... Um, I live in California. Uh, there's almost no one here who has not been threatened by either the smoke from our uh, vast, humongous wildfires in the last four years or so, and historic wildfires. Every year we burn through the previous year's records. And, you know, people are traumatized. Last year, one day we woke up, and it wasn't even, I think it was this year. We, we woke up and, no, it was in the fall, and the sky was orange in the middle yes. of the day, you know, and it stayed orange. We woke up, it was orange. We thought, oh, this is where it'll go away. No, it didn't. And the air quality was the worst on the planet that, that day. And, you know, so climate trauma comes from people who have, you know, experienced these, these you know, traumatic floods, catastrophic fires, and so many tornadoes, all manner of things that are out of place, like blizzards in Texas and so forth. And uh, Canada, you know, British Columbia, this little green little town in the midst of a, you know, mountain uh, valley suddenly uh, has a fire and then goes up in smoke and the next state no longer exists. So just hearing about that, people get climate trauma because there's no safe place to be. They're now acknowledging that 
these events that are now happening and you know kind of catastrophic events that are happening the climate scientists were not expecting this for another five to ten years uh, or even later um, in consideration of how much our global average climate has um, heated so they were wrong <laughs> essentially it's worse than we expected it's earlier than we expected so there's that and then there's eco anxiety eco anxiety is coming from you know decades i mean the last three generations probably have um, been grappling with environmental degradation and loss of uh, of of wilderness loss of wild spaces i mean i grew up in montreal canada and surrounded by forests and we were in a suburb but you know the suburb was surrounded by forests i go back now there's not a tree in sight except some ornamental ones on somebody's you know front porch and i'm like the forest that i gathered strawberries in as a little girl have disappeared and it's really quite unbelievable because this was mostly green and it was still very well settled. So I think of Southern California where we lived for more than 10 years. And when we first went to San Bernardino County, it was grapevines, vineyards and, and orange groves. And now it's all built up from all the way from LA to Palm Springs. There's, you know, there's no space for anything. And uh, so We've been dealing with this loss of, you know, verdant places, wilderness, uh, meadows, biodiversity for three generations, four generations. And so it's now come to this, what scientists call, this, call the sixth mass extinction. And even if people aren't aware of that, they're aware that things are just disappearing things that they knew, even, you know, very young people, um, especially very young people, I would say. So this whole field, you know, this whole problem of the psychological mental health damage, not to mention the physical health damage of all of us, you know, breathing smoke, having very high temperatures, the body can't cool down. Um, this kind of problem requires resilience if we're to survive. So now it's not just a matter of worrying about, you know, uh, the last ancient groves of, of uh, trees, this last stands of, of forests. Of, it's about your last stand, you know? And so we were, when we were conceiving this particular kind of um, course, this uh, GT original, we were thinking of, you know, how do we heal? Because we can't, we can't really engage the problem of sustainability if we can't sustain ourselves first. And so in terms of, you know, the, the, the ability to heal ourselves in a way that embeds us in the natural world while we still realize that it's disappearing. So how do we do that? Is it even safe to go up into the forest? Is it safe to go up to Yosemite and get stuck if there's a wildfire? Well, that's why, you know, I think I end uh, one of the modules by saying uh, it can be uh, as close as your backyard or your kitchen um, herb uh, garden that can be on your windowsill. The, the necessity of being in touch with growing things is profoundly healing. And uh, so we, we hope that uh, the modules themselves are healing as well. So while we're talking about, you know, the roots of the American environmental movement, the conservation movement, the roots are problematic. On one hand, um, there's this recovery of the Asian contribution to that. The transcendentalists were profoundly influenced 
by um, Hindu and Buddhist scriptures, texts, and writings, contemporary writings of that time as well. And later you have the beat poets who, who were major influencers of the conservation movement, the environmental, uh, contemporary environmental movement. And then you have the arrival of, um, you know, communities uh, who are Hindu, who are Buddhist, who are Taoist, and also teachers from these traditions. And so there were, there was a lot of influence and, you know, that is a matter of reclaiming it when you have Asian Americans suffering from, um, in, you know, daily hate um, crimes, it's, it's kind of important to recover these sources to create what I call an American tapestry. But there's also this downside that the, the very beginnings of our history of the conservation movement starts with and starts with ethnic cleansing of indigenous communities from what we now love, which is our national parks. So I, I know one of, uh, one of my colleagues who is an indigenous um, writer, who is an indigenous uh, scholar, wrote that, you know, he gets very angry when um, it's said that Indigenous, you know, the native peoples of the Americas were the first conservationists here. He said, no, no, we're not conservationists because cons the conservation movement displaced us, ethnically mm -hmm. cleansed us. And it has a view of nature, which is very problematic, um, that names nature as one thing and human as a different thing. And the two must be kept sacred I'm sorry, separate right. if nature is to be seen as sacred. And the indigenous perspective is what we call human ecology. That is that you engage nature, that you accept the fruits of nature, but you do it in a way that you are also a very good steward of nature. And so we, you know, I think, uh, my colleague, Devin Zuber, who did the um, greening spirituality with me, he talks about how Oakland was full of live oaks and wow. California live oaks. And it was, it, it was planted and managed and protected by uh, Native peoples of the area, you know. And so... This is one of the things that, you know, we, we try to gently remind people that we are on unceded land. Many of us are yes. on land that has not really, was not never given away by treaty. Um, and so we acknowledge that and that is not enough. Uh, so Native conservationists want a voice in uh, in fact, uh, the United Nations has recognized that it's a very, very helpful way to uh, manage land um, that's being restored by working with the indigenous peoples of, you know, various uh, nations and continents. So, you know, that's one of the, another one of the things that we note. And then the relationship that African-Americans have had with the land is complex. Yeah, that was so interesting. I do a show, by the way, on uh, anti-racism and bias. It's called Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. And, and when I was watching these, I thought, you've got to come on there, too, because especially when you were talking about the decolonizing the spiritual. The thing is that I just wanted to mention one thing, and that is um, the, the relationship to land is very different um, for different groups of people. And um, so if you look at the relationship to land of uh, black Americans, um, of African-Americans whose history, not recent immigrants, but whose history lies in uh, ancestors who were enslaved. And these, these people, you know, who were for, you know, who were enslaved many times the way that they had a sense of 
connection to the land and also uh, a sense of agency um, was when they were able to grow things of their own. Because it is in the growing of things that their bodies were broken and their spirits were shattered by being brought over and enslaved. But they were able to reclaim agency in these remarkable ways. And so you have these stories of um, mother's gardens, you know, um, Alice Walker wrote about it, many others have written about it, that the, the gardens of their foremothers uh, that grew vegetables and flowers and herbs. And this is a way of reclaiming uh, the meaning of land and our connection to it. And so there's a lot we can learn that um, eco-womanists uh, teach us that we would not have thought of and which are very helpful to us today because very few of us have the luxury of um, large backyards where we can plant, a, you know, an entire park. You know, those days are gone and there's a housing crisis, not to mention um, houselessness and homelessness. And so if you, if you have community gardens, they're developing in, is it, um, Santa Clara was talking about developing um, one of these forest gardens, urban forest gardens. And if you, you know, when you have very hot, dry places, um, you have to have filtered shade for things to grow. So if you plant trees in an urban environment and you can then have, you know, vegetable gardening, fruit gardening under in the understory of the trees and the trees provide the overstory and the filtered light. Uh, so these forest gardens were always initially thought of as something, you know, you did in eco villages, you know, 50 miles from the city or whatever. No, now we want to bring that into urban areas. And that also affects, uh, be benefits those suffering from, you know, food deserts uh, where they can't access fresh produce and fresh food. And that is, you know, a part of environmental injustice. When we think of environmental injustice, we think of Flint, Michigan, lead in pipes and children's brains being damaged and we think of uh, perhaps um, landfill uh, dump sites being right next to um, communities of color. But, you know, there's a more insidious things like not having health care in uh, urban areas, um, the flight of pharmacies from urban areas, and then, of course, the famous food deserts. Um, in the inner cities. So many of these things can be um, addressed by bringing the concepts of intentional communities and equal villages right into our urban spaces. I think what's so interesting too, is not just in the modules, but in your book as well, is, is looking at religion. And you write about the malrelationship between human civilization and the ecosystems of the earth and that this devastation, there's this ecosphere devastation. And you write that it's linked to, quote, unsustainable economic, ecological, societal, geopolitical, cultural, and ethical perspectives. And I got the sense of hope from reading your book that if we can look at a different paradigm. I think a lot of people think, oh, religion, how is that helping the environment? I mean, aren't a lot of people on the right more, you know, religious, but yet they tend to, not all of them, but there tend to be, tends to be more climate denial. Like, how do we reckon this? So, uh, yeah, I write about this in my forthcoming other book, uh, which is uh, called Radical Eminence. Um, and I talk about this that, you know, when we think of religion. In a, in a very diminished way, you know, um, and, and this is very problematic. So I would say that, you know, the, the ways of knowing, I mean, right now, what, what kind of paradigm 
are we functioning under? We're functioning under a paradigm that has reduced human existence to the point where consumer and, you know, product meet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so these ways of knowing and understanding that have led to catastrophic climate change, the ravaging of earth and its life support systems, environmental racism and societal inequity, and are the causal factors in human despair, they're not likely to lead to the healing of the same. You know, so I would say that we need uh, ways of knowing and understanding beyond this, you know, uh, hegemonic paradigm, um, this reigning paradigm, and sustaining sources for hope, purpose, resilience, inner strength are available in religion. Alternate ways of thinking about not just ethical questions, but existential questions and aims, they, which can ignite you know, our imagination, which can empower our will. These can be in, you know, found in religion. So, because without transformed vision that inspires kind of consistent alterations in human values and not just behaviors, then, you know, new information on threats posed by, let's say, the rapid loss of biodiversity or new evidence of the dangers of the disruptions of unrestricted resource extraction or even the shocking existential experience that all of us have had of climate crisis will remain incompletely processed in our minds and inadequately addressed by our actions. So I would say that, you know, there are, what we try to do is explore the ways of knowing, understanding, aspiring, that are embedded in religion and philosophy, theoethics, moral reflection. These are invaluable. These are existential lenses of interpretation that can encourage um, a perception of ourselves as communitarian, that can promote compassionate motivation, that can inspire um, an interpretation of life's aim as more morally grounded. Then there's the aspiration towards care and service rather than raw avarice, you know, greed. These things can become valid bases for action. So, you know, grounding in an earth-affirming theological vision does not have to come out of a specific religion. But there's a potency of spiritual thought, spiritual reflection, of contemplative practice, I call it contemplative activism, that, can, that also improves physical and mental health, and it can provide the courage, resilience, and hope to face, you know, imminent disasters. But, you know, I mean, to, to not be Pollyannish, I will say to be sure, historical evidence and present-day politics demonstrates, sure, the role of major religions in Dominion, patriarchy, slavery, colonization, cultural destruction, classism, sexism, and everything you can think of. This is undeniable. But but religions aren't concrete blocks of stone. You know, they're flowing rivers that change significantly with time, with our needs, with our circumstances. And sacred texts, both oral for indigenous people, oral, there's oral sacred texts and written sacred texts. They're not carved in stone. They're repositories of very subtle and what we call in, you know, we call this multivocal. That is many ways of, many voices are in there. They are repositories of these subtle and multivocal insights. So, you know, theology isn't just something people sit down and just put together. It's a result of trained extensive interpretive engagement with these complex, nuanced texts and histories. You write in the book as well, uh, quote, sustainable nature requires sustainable societies. If you can expand on that for us. Yes. Um, 
you know, if you're in a war zone, you're not going to worry about anything but your survival. Many of us live in war zones in peacetime. Um, when we hear of our, ma you know, daily shootings, weekly mass shootings, all of the terrible um, environmental catastrophes that are happening to people, if you don't take care of the lives of societies, if you don't stabilize, if you don't give them resources uh, that, and by resources, I mean material, um, economic, social, and also psychological, emotional, spiritual, all of these resources, it creates healthy communities. Healthy communities move to develop stronger and more sustainable societies. When you have that first, social justice, environmental justice, um, ecological restoration, and equity, economic equity, then people have the, the luxury of thinking widely and deeply about how we can jointly um, turn this ship around or at least make it watertight because we're, we're going to face a storm one way or the other. Yeah, that is so true. I want to go back into the greening spirituality. In Module 4, you talk about appropriation, the action of taking something, including a cultural practice, for one's own use, typically without the owner's permission. You were talking about something called echopraxis. That's the name of the module. And it, my 17-year-old daughter regularly asks me, she'll see a video or she'll see a, something on TV and she'll say, mom, is that cultural appropriation? Is that cultural appropriation? I said, yes, I, I believe that is. And then today I was interviewing a very wonderful man who teaches yoga and he's a white man. And we were talking about you know, people who teach yoga who are white but are talking about the different yogic practices. Cultural appropriation to me, to me, and I'm speaking out of my context uh, as an Asian American, is not, nothing to do with color. It's to do with commitment. So if you have, and we do have, um, let's say, people who are of South, uh, South Asian, Indian origin, who are uh, who have, are from the Hindu heritage, and um, you know who grew up with the Bhagavad Gita, with the Yoga Sutra, and so on, and they use it for you know uh, commercial ends. Um, and I don't mean commercial ends in as in running a yoga studio, but in commercial ends as in you know promising things that they can't deliver on YouTube and being social influencers on media, social media, and um, teaching contemplative, powerful contemplative practices to corporations so that workers who are already, you know, exhausted and burnt out can produce better for their corporations. You know, there are people whose heritage are in these traditions who are doing that. That's appropriation. If, a, if someone who is not from that tradition does it, that's also appropriation. It has everything to do with commitment to, to the tradition of yoga or the tradition of meditation or whatever tradition you're talking about and nothing to do with color for me. And, and I have... I have, uh, over the last five years, I've had, I think, 12 PhD students, and uh, many of them are students who are of Euro-American origin. They're Caucasian origin, and uh, but they're Hindu. That is their identity. That's not my opinion, that they have gone through the training, they have gone through the uh, deep practices, and they are more committed to the tradition than many other people. Um, who happen to have, uh, you know, ancestry there. So 
when does it become appropriation? When it's when you have reductionism, you know, when you reduce it to one thing. So, for example, let's talk for a minute about mindfulness. Such a helpful thing in this um, time of activism and advocacy, which can burn out people, and mindfulness can really help. But mindfulness comes out of Buddhist meditation, uh, particularly Thailand, Burma area, um, and there it's in it's vipassana meditation, uh, which means you know clear insight. And, and the thing is that when you take that completely out of its context, you chop off its roots, you chop it off from the intention. The intention of this meditation is not to calm you down, you know, to make you feel relaxed. The intention of this meditation is to shake you up because it's to bring you face to face with the fact that you're, nothing is stable in either your body or your mind. Everything is changing moment by moment. And that shaking up of the self can promote, it's meant to promote uh, a reflection. How do I live rightly in a body and mind that is not only impermanent, but is changing moment to moment. Yeah, that's not meant to make you comfortable. That's meant to make you think. So, <laughs> you know, when we take that element out, uh, it can be used for commercialism. It can be used for the very purposes um, for that it was meant to shatter. So that's appropriation. When you... When you do that, when you reduce it to some minor aspect of its capacity, when you cut it off from its aims, from its roots, and you have no respect from for the background it's coming out of and the, the culture it's coming out of, that's appropriation. You know, when you mentioned respect, it made me think about both in Module 1 and Roots in Module 4 and Eco Practice, you talk about unceded territory and being aware that this land was somebody else's and sort of have, how do you handle, you know, you love to be in nature and it's wonderful and you go out there and it's great, but yet also having the guilt and the feeling just like uh, overwhelmed about what happened and balancing that. You can talk to us a little bit about that. You know, um, I'm very I'm very um, comfortable, and uh, I commend uh, the action uh, of allyship, but I don't like the word. Sure. And the reason is because, and I said this in one of my videos, which is online. Um, I did a plenary address during uh, the United Nations um, Day of. Um, anti, uh, what was it, elimination of racial discrimination. And what I said is that, you know, I don't want to be your ally, okay? Because in, in my theological world, you are a part of me. You're, I am an extension of you, and you are a part of me. We are so interrelated, in fact, that this is not a belief system I hold. This is not a philosophical position that I am suggesting. It's a fact that is empirically proven by the truth of our having to mask when we're in the same room together in the midst of a pandemic. We're that interrelated. Your breath becomes my breath. Okay? So we're interrelated on so many levels, and this is empirically experientially, scientifically, factual. If I allow my brother and sister, my black brother and sister, my indigenous brother and sister, my white brother and sister, and so forth, to suffer, to be oppressed, to be tortured or to be um, unjustly treated, 
I'm doing it to myself. Their suffering is my suffering. And so I'm not doing them a favor. I'm not being an ally to them. Their pain belongs to me. And perhaps this is coming out of my own tradition where uh, the divine is profoundly, radically, organically imminent in the world. And therefore, there is theologically no ground for my thinking of you as a, a distinct being with, with nothing to do with me. And there's no ground for me to be perfectly comfortable with something bad happening to you because it's also happening to me. And the thing is that when people say, well, isn't that very kind of uh, naive and a little idealistic? And I ask them, you know, those people who um, vote in or fail to resist and fail to stop authoritarian, totalitarian uh, dictatorships and governance from taking hold, like we, we all, very everyone's familiar with Nazi Germany, but there's so many others. Um, what happens is that eventually it starts with people on the margins and it ends up coming to you. It ends up coming to whoever's in the center. Eventually, everybody suffers. Everybody's oppressed. You know, it's interesting about the allyship because I've talked with my co-host, Sunny Days, who's a black woman, about that. And she li she likes the term because I said, I think we should change it. For us, it's like our intention is to bring people together, to have hard conversations, to have white people look at their biases and their racism and have open hard conversations and whatever we call it, our goal is about love and acceptance and just kind of getting to the root of our own crap that we've been taught in this society. So, but I, re I really appreciate what you said. I think that means a lot. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit too about in the second module, Turtle Island, there was some very interesting stuff about Thoreau and John Muir. And there was something uh, also about Gary Snyder you talked a bit about. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are familiar with Thoreau and John Muir. But if you can tell us a little bit about Gary Snyder and, and he talked about his connected, he connected his sense of self with wilderness. Gary Snyder is such an interesting person. I just, I just wrote about him. Um, couple of days ago. Gary <laughs> <Just>, um, <laughs> Snyder is, um, he was, okay, so he's still alive. He's a professor and he's a Pulitzer Prize winner for his poetry. Um, he also received the American Book Award. He's, he's an American poet, essayist, um, you know, pro teacher, professor, environmental activist. But I don't think he would accept any of those terms. I think he would just say, I'm just a human being in relation to the world in which I'm embedded. And everything I write is about that relationship. This is how he would see himself. But, you know, he's one of the poets of the, what's called the beat poets, you know, the beat generation. Um, I think he was born in 1930. Um, and basically... He had this profound impact uh, on so many things, on American culture. Um, he is known as one of the, you know, pioneers of the San Francisco Renaissance. Um, and there, there's, he's also called, the, you know, one of the things people call him is a poet laureate of deep ecology. But his work, you know, reflects his knowledge of East Asia. He'd been to India, he'd been to China, he lived in Japan for many years, and he was a professor at, at UC Davis. And um, he translated literature from English, to, into English, from ancient Chinese, uh, classical Chinese, and modern Japanese. And so his poet, his poetry, reflects that. It reflects the, you know, kind of uh, very stark and uh, pared down um, 
clean verses of Chinese poetry, classical Chinese poetry, um, Zen haiku, I mean, Japanese haiku, some of the Zen poetry. So he brought all of these Asian influences into um, American literary uh, work and also into the environmental movement. What do you hope people take away from the GTUX course, Greening Spirituality? I hope that they can enter into it and just let themselves experience it. Because, you know, we're not trying to... Uh, our, our, our job in this is not so much to give them bits of information or data or historical knowledge. That's there. But it's to make them feel. It's to make them feel that this land in which we live, this beloved America, is not just its people and culture. It's, it's people, it's culture, it's waters, it's mountains, it's trees, all woven together somehow. And if we, this is an equal spiritual perspective that you don't romanticize nature. I mean, right now the climate crisis is reminding us, don't romanticize nature, it's going to kill you. It's a matter of sacralizing nature and understanding that that sacred nature includes us. The human is embedded in that. There is no nature outside of us. We are part of it. And so it, I would love it if people came into this as an experience and walked away with the reflections on what it means to be a human in a um, greater than human world. Yeah, well, I, I walked away with a lot. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. And and what about for your book? Your book comes out in the fall. If you want to tell us a little bit more about your book, is that actually available for pre-order? Or Yes, it is. Oh, wonderful. The book is part of, uh, well, the center that I direct has a Dharma, Dharma and Sustainability Initiative. And then we have uh, Sustainability 360 GTUs, Sustainability 360, which I co-chair, co-lead with um, my colleague, uh, Devin Zuber. And it's a humanities incubator for environmental projects and thought. And this book comes out of conferences um, as well as yeah, an all-original material. And I wanted to say something particular about the book. The title of the book is Religion and Sustainability, Interreligious Resources, Interdisciplinary Responses. So it is both interreligious and interdisciplinary. So the first thing we talk about in this is, you know, uh, when people think of religions, very often they think of warring groups of people, right? Yep. <laughs> So if we're going to work together interreligiously, which, by the way, is happening all across the world, and the United Nations Environmental Program uh, recognizes this and is using religious communities to help with um, restoration and with conservation and so forth. But anyway, we can't do that if we're, we're at, you know, um, loggerheads. So the, the first part of the book talks about sustainable relationships towards interreligious hospitality. That if we can, you know, have sustainable relations, then we can work together towards, you know, planetary sustainability. Um, and this is not a pipe dream. As I said, it's happening. Then the second part, we talk about equity, economic equity. So it's religion and sustainable economics. There's, there's things called ecological economics, which again was found, you know, one of the pioneers, two of the pioneers of that are in Berkeley. One of them has written in this volume. And then we go on to talk about philosophical and theological insights on ecology from various different religions and not necessarily religions, but also various different cultures. Then we talk about ethics 
um, coming out of these different cultures and worldviews. Um, so, but we also talk about human rights and justice. We call that part sustainable lives, you know, which answers somewhat to um, what you asked about. Um, how does sustainable societies, uh, why is it needed for sustainable nature? And um, then there's a section, which is one of my favorites, being a former commissioned artist, um, and that's called Art, Aesthetics, and Ecological Praxis. So that, you know, people are using art and aesthetics um, not, not just today, but have been throughout history to form that connection with the more than human self. Um, and so there's rituals and um, there's ecological communities. There's all manner of fascinating things in, in this section. Uh, the nature of religion and spirituality to gardens. Um, there's a, there's a, an article here, a chapter which talks about decolonizing landscapes, artistic activism, and eco-religious imagination. And so, you know, just to give you the, the breadth of the book, I always have to remind people that religion and sustainability is not religion and ecology. Religion and sustainability contains religion and ecology, but goes beyond that, goes beyond religion into spirituality, into faith, but also into the moral dimension of being human. And it contains all disciplines, all our fields, all our sectors of economic activity, and our cries for justice on so many levels. That's amazing. If you can give us the website for the Greening Spirituality course, and then also how we find you and where we can find your book for pre-order. So my book is available both at Springer and on Amazon for pre-order. And it's called Religion and Sustainability, Interreligious Resources, Interdisciplinary Responses. If you just put that in, and you put my name, Rita Sherma. I have a co-editor with me, help me with this. And it'll come up. It'll come up in Amazon. It'll come up in Springer, this publisher. For me, if you put Rita D. Sherma, D as in David, middle initial, D, Rita D. Sherma, I will pop up. Um, there's a lot of stuff. There's videos. There's, <laughs> there's all manner of websites. There's all my writings. A lot of it is online and uh, LinkedIn, academia.edu, and so forth. And the greening spirituality, best thing to do is type greening spirituality, G-T-U-X. Wonderful. Dr. Sherma, this has been glorious. I mean, I've, my mind is opened in a way, uh, things that I've learned looking at religion in a different way and, and all the other wonderful things we talked about. I want to thank you so much for coming on Talk Healthy today. I really appreciate you. It's been such a pleasure, and uh, I want to commend you on the work that you do, uh, several podcasts. Uh, sometimes we, sometime we should get together and discuss this issue of, um, you know, climate-aware, climate-trauma-aware mental health. appreciate very much the work you're doing, Lisa. Please keep it up. Oh, well, thank you. I feel the same about you. What if the earth were your spiritual teacher? In Greening Spirituality, an online learning opportunity from the Graduate Theological Union's GTUX, Drs. Rita Sherma and Devin Zuber examine the connections between spirituality and the natural world, including special consideration of Native American and Dharma traditions in the development of American environmentalism. Visit gtu.edu slash x to discover and sign up for learning opportunities on topics like justice, spiritual care, theology, ethics, and more. Podcast listeners can get free access to greening spirituality by using the code yogajournal at checkout. 
Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. Please do rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, if you want some behind the scenes on Talk Healthy Today or a chance monthly to win my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex, which is a memoir, cookbook, healthy lifestyle guide, it's the title is just a play on words, please go to www.lisadavismph.com. Sign up for my newsletter. And once a month, you'll be getting some great information as well as being entered into a contest to win my book. So again, go to www.lisadavismph.com. Get more on Talk Healthy Today and keep coming back. There's always great information. Thank you.